Welcome to this special edition of the Successful Farming Podcast brought to you by the United Soybean Board. I'm Lori Boyer. On today's show, I am joined by Dr. Alan Thompson. He is a plant science and technology professor emeritus in the College of Agriculture, Food and Natural Resources at the University of Missouri. And today we will be talking about irrigation and drainage strategies and practices. Who's in the plywood at stores nationwide? You are. That's right, you. Today's soybean farmers, like you, are literally building demand for your soybeans. How? By pooling resources through the Soy Checkoff. The Soy Checkoff is working with product manufacturers to replace petroleum oil with your soybean oil. And that brings tangible returns back to your bottom line. See all the ways the Soy Checkoff is moving soy forward at unitedsoybean.org slash copper. Dr. Thompson, can you share with us a little bit more information on your background? I grew up in western Nebraska, a small farm, cow, cattle, mostly dry land. So I have a history with that, with uh, agriculture. And I actually spent four years in the Navy. I was an aerographer, which is a weather observer. So I learned a lot about weather in there. And then my degree is in agricultural engineering. I did all those at Washington State University, including a master's. And I did my doctorate work at the University of Nebraska, now, I've been in Columbia at the University of Missouri since uh, 1986. Be... Very impressive, Dr. Thompson. What courses have you taught? Surface water management, irrigation, soil erosion, watershed modeling. So I open with a general question. Where do we need to begin when we think about putting together an irrigation system for our operation? I look to see a couple of things. Number one, I look to see, obviously, you've already decided that you want irrigation. You're, you're at least interested in irrigation. So number one is, what's your water source? Is it going to be from groundwater? Is it going to be from surface water? And then secondly, what's your energy source? If you're in a remote location, then you may be looking at an internal combustion, diesel, propane, et cetera, for your power unit. Or if you have three-phase electrical power, then you can go ahead and do electricity. Then you need to determine, well, how much, if I want to do an irrigation system, what crop am I irrigating? So you're going to want to know what's my water requirement for that specific crop. So you should have some idea also of what type of precipitation patterns do I have. If I'm not currently irrigating, I have a pretty good idea when the stressful times for water might be during the season. So I want to make sure that I can get water supply during those particular times. By doing that, then you have a better idea. Okay, so what am I actually going to do for my irrigation system? You can design a system for typically one of two conditions. Either you're going to do it 100%, I'm depending on irrigation, I'm assuming I'm going to get very little rainfall, or you can do it with more of a supplemental design where you say, okay, I only need maybe half as much water as the crop might require. So I'm going to use a supplemental irrigation system to make sure I have water during those stressful times of the year. If you look at what you have, let's just take Missouri this this particular year. I'm in central Missouri, that's where Columbia is located. We've had extreme drought conditions. We've had rains to the north of us, rains to the south of us, but we're several inches behind where we would normally be. And right now, corn is just tasseling. So if I'm looking at irrigation and these, I might say, well, you know, from Missouri, I don't need a lot of irrigation because normally May, June, I get a lot of rain. That's not true this year. So what you normally find is that for supplemental irrigation systems, you're probably better off just going for full irrigation. I'm going to depend solely on irrigation. And then if I get rainfall, I just shut the system down. Uh, and then you have to be, are you able to manage the system? Uh, you know, you can have a well-designed irrigation system 
uh, installed by uh, a local distributor. But if you can't manage it, if you don't have the time or a little training to be able to do that, then you're going to run into some challenges. That leads into my next question here. And what are some of the common mistakes or issues that you have encountered with farmers? Irrigation scheduling is probably the number one. How much water do I put on and how often do I I put it on? So what I typically see is producers tend to over-irrigate. They think a little is good, maybe more is better. So some way of knowing how much water I'm actually applying and then how much water is the crop actually using. Poor management can be somewhat dealt with is if you go out to the field and check it to see is the system operating properly? Are the sprinklers operating? Are some of them plugged, which is a possibility? So those are the things that an owner can do and check that fairly quickly. And then the other thing is there's so many apps available now for irrigation scheduling, particularly from university extension offices, so that you can match up your planting dates with the crop. You can match up irrigation with the rainfall. A lot of these states will have online sites that you can check to see what the water balance is for your particular location. If you'll do that, you'll do a much better job in terms of irrigating. You mentioned apps in there. What other technology would you recommend? Well, historically, they've had more with if you're willing to run computer models. A lot of these extension offices will have computer models where you can put in all the information yourself. So if you want to do more hands-on, you can certainly do that. A simple thing you can have is a rain gauge. Have a rain gauge as close to the field as possible, depending on how large of an operation you have. You may have more than one rain gauge, but have some idea of how much precipitation am I actually getting at that field. And then you can go back and look at, you know, updated information from most of these sites in terms of what extension offices will have. They'll even go ahead and say, take Missouri as an example. We have an app where if you put in your planting date, the crop, it'll go ahead and then basically follow you for the, through the season for what the water requirements would be. And then you just, your job then is to match that up. One of the things that you could do as well, and some states require this, is to have a flow meter on your irrigation system. And so if I have a flow meter, I know how much total water I'm putting on. I know how large of an area I'm covering. Let's say you have a center pivot. So I know how many acres I'm irrigating on a full rotation to see how much water I'm putting on. Assuming that that's all uniformly applied, then I have a pretty good idea how much I'm putting on with each application. And most of these center pivot panels, if that's what they're using as a center pivot, again, you have to have a flow meter, but they'll have the flow information, a timer, and speed control. So you have some idea of how much water you're putting on with each application. Some states don't require the flow meter. It's a little bit more difficult if you decide not to put one on to know how much water you're, you're applying. I think you answered a lot of this question already. When we first started, I said we could go in so many different directions because I know irrigation is different for every region of the U.S. So I thought maybe honing in a little bit more on where you're at in the Midwest as well. Is there any other common irrigation system strategies for Midwestern farmers to talk about today? Sprinkler irrigation is part of the number one. You know, years ago, you saw some surface irrigation. And of course, to be able to use surface irrigation, the land has to be pretty leveled to be able to do that. But it's the oldest form of irrigation, and it gets water to the field. The problem with surface irrigation, speaking more along the lines of furrow, it's very low application efficiency. You may only have 40% efficiency, and a lot of that water is either going to deep percolation below the root zone or water simply running out the end of of the furrow out the field. So today, with most modern systems, you're going to see 
sprinklers with pivots. Now, I will say that there is some move toward doing subsurface drip irrigation. And that's where you take a drip irrigation line and you bury it typically between 12 and 18 inches deep. And you'll have those spaced accordingly throughout the field so that you eliminate wind drift, you eliminate evaporation, you eliminate runoff. You can actually operate in the field while you're irrigating. So there is some move toward that, especially in areas where, let's say, the water table, you've been using groundwater and the water table has been dropping. You can use that to get much higher efficiencies. Some of the downsides for that is you actually can't see the water. So if you have a problem, it's going to be secondary when you see it. You may see a part of the field that uh, looks like my crop is water stress. Gives you an idea, I have something wrong. Either I have a leak in the laterals or I have drip lines that are plugged. But those two are probably the primary ones where you see either sprinkler irrigation with pivots or you see subsurface drip irrigation. And Dr. Thompson, what is the best way to prevent soil erosion? Soil erosion can occur from rainfall or it can recur from, let's say you have irrigation system, you're over applying the water. Probably the cheapest and the best way to do it is maintain crop residue on the surface. So if you'll do no-till practices, as an example, will hold a lot more residue on the surface. Conservation tillage would do the same thing, a little cheaper to do conservation tillage. What that residue does, it'll intercept that runoff water, and it'll also trap any of the sediments that are there and give that water more time to infiltrate. That's part of the number one thing you can do. Secondly, you could go ahead and practice contour farming. And contouring simply says any tillage practice that you do, you're going to do at right angles to the slope. So those rills will intercept that water as it flows downhill and reduce the risk for erosion loss. Now I'm talking everything here about water erosion. Again, where I grew up in Western Nebraska, you may have wind erosion. And wind erosion, again, keeping residue on the surface is a big way of improving and reducing sediment loss. And again, it's probably the cheapest way to do it. And what about irrigation scheduling? Just make sure you don't overwater. If you have a field that has a lot of change in topography, you may have some drainage waste through there. Then what you want to do is have vegetative waterways. Keep that so that it's arbored with the root zones of that grass, as an example, in a vegetative waterway. So it'll carry that water out in a controlled fashion. With irrigation systems, you probably see less of that, but it depends on, again, what your topography is like. Dr. Thompson, in doing some reading on some of the research work that you have been involved in, you have worked on water droplet mechanics. Can you talk more about that? Well, if you think about erosion, where does it start? It's raindrop energy. The energy of those droplets, when they strike the surface, particularly if there's no residue to protect the surface, when it hits those soil aggregates, it starts to break those down. And when that happens, you're going to get fine material that'll filter in through the pore spaces between the aggregates you reduce your infiltration rate. Now, looking at individual droplet information is something you wouldn't necessarily do for irrigation scheduling. So the purpose for doing that is is more basic, looking at the basic concepts that control the processes of reduction in infiltration rate with the soils. So by learning that, if we're going to do improvements, often we'll do that with simulation models so that we can go ahead and then figure out, okay, had I done a little different practice. Had I done a practice where I did more conservation tillage, what impact would that have had in terms of reducing my soil loss and improving my infiltration? So when you look at individual droplet raindrop, that's really more for possibly water quality, but looking at the fundamental aspects 
of what influences the, the soil surface conditions. And then we would apply that to models. So as an end user, let's say I'm a farmer with an irrigation system, I really won't worry about that, but I'll look to see what publications come out from extension agents, offices and such to be able to make sure I'm doing best management practices. Where do we start when trying to maximize the percentage of irrigation water that enters the soil and is available to the plant roots? Okay. Uh, the first thing, look at your soil texture. Uh, the coarser the soil, the sandier the soil, if you will, uh, the better the infiltration. I think we all are pretty well uh, aware of that. That means I can have a little bit higher application rate without having runoff. At the same time, if I irrigate a coarser soil, that water that moves in fairly rapidly can actually go deep enough to get below the root zone. So if I'm doing irrigation scheduling on a coarse soil, I'm more likely going to do a less amount per irrigation, but irrigate more frequently. And I'm typically not going to be too concerned about runoff because of that uh, higher infiltration rate. Now, the finer the textured soils, if I have silts, or let's say I have some clays in the surface, uh, silty clays, my infiltration rate is going to go down significantly. So then I need to be careful, especially on sloped areas, that my irrigation application rate does not exceed that intake rate of the soil. One way of, of helping with that then is to know the design of the irrigation system. Let's say you have a center pivot. When that's installed, they should do a uniformity test for the pivot. They're going to make sure that the sprinklers that they've selected and the nozzles that they've selected match your soil conditions. So they'll, they'll start off with the uniformity test. Are they actually getting a uniform application? And there are ASABE, American Society of Ag and Biological Engineering. There are standards of what that is supposed to meet. So if if an installer puts in a system and they, they claim that it meets ASABE standards, then you can go back and see, well, what does that really mean in terms of uniformity? Is it 80% uniformity or whatever that might be? They'll meet that condition. And then in terms of operating the system, you want to make sure that you don't run it so slow and what I'm talking about is a rotation speed. Because the slower a pivot moves, the more water it's going to put on on a given spot. It depends on what your soils are, but typically you put on either 0.9 inches or maybe up to as much as an inch and a half. That's that's quite a bit of water. But that has to be matched to the flow rate of the system and the crop water requirement needs. You don't want to over-irrigate, and you want to make sure that you don't have an application rate that exceeds the intake capacity of the soil. So look at your soil texture look at your soil management, and, and be sure that you're maintaining uh, adequate surface cover. With that being said, how do we avoid runoff? Know what your water requirements are. In terms of how much water does a plant, let's say corn crop use in July, it may use up to 0.3 inches of water a day. So you need to figure out, well, how much water do I need to apply on a given application and make sure that that water is actually stored in, in the surface by not going too slow you'll end up putting more water in that one location, particularly, again, if it's a steeped area. And if you've done a good job with residue management, that'll also help you. One of the problems you can run into with pivot systems, maybe you have a low spot in the field and it tends to collect water. So in a case like that, you may want to look at something like variable rate irrigation, VRI. Today's pivots are capable of doing that. It's a little bit more expensive to actually have that capability but it gives you the flexibility of, of changing the application depth in a given position of the field. There's three types of variable rate irrigation. One is simply speed control of the pivot. By rotating the pivot faster over those areas that tend to have runoff, you'll put less water on and you can help protect. Uh, so that's that's pretty simple. You just change this, uh, the speed of the machine. 
Uh, you can also have individual sprinkler control where you can turn sprinklers on and off, or they may be in, in banks where several sprinklers together can be operated as a zone. And those options are available for manufacturers today. And I'm sure that has to do with uniformity and improving uniformity then. Well, one of the things you can do, assuming that the system has been properly designed and it's properly nozzled, periodically check sprinkler system to make sure you don't have stuck or plugged uh, sprinklers, sprinkler nozzles. In years past, you saw a lot of impact sprinklers, which couldn't, you know, if that bearing got hung up, it could stick. Today, you see very few impact sprinklers. You see mostly spray nozzles. So that problem has kind of gone away. But you can still have sprinklers that can get hung up in the canopy. Let's say that you're using drop tubes. The traditional design was to put the sprinklers on top of the pipe. Your sprinklers are about 14 feet above the ground, but it easily cleared the canopy. But you're more subject to wind drift when you do that. So what you see a lot of systems today, they'll have drop tubes coming off of the main pipe, and then they'll have sprinklers mounted on the bottom of those drop tubes, so they'll be closer to the canopy. And depending on how tall, let's say, a corn crop is, uh, you may get some some sprinklers caught up, and the spacing can get changed because of that. Who's in the plywood at stores nationwide? You are. That's right, you. Today's soybean farmers, like you, are literally building demand for your soybeans. How? By pooling resources through the soy checkoff. The soy checkoff is working with product manufacturers to replace petroleum oil with your soybean oil. And that brings tangible returns back to your bottom line. See all the ways the soy checkoff is moving soy forward at unitedsoybean.org slash hopper. Dr. Thompson, what are some suggestions if water supply becomes a challenge? That's a great question because the first thing you need to have water supply to begin with. And if your water is going to be interrupted, at least you want to look to see where is the critical irrigation periods. Again, let's take corn as an example. Uh, When you see tasseling and silks and and you have pollination in the fruiting, that's the most stressful prone time for that crop. If you can get water on the crop during that particular time, you can really help yourself in terms of of yield potential. If you can't do that, then then you're going to have some, you'll just have reduction in, in your yields because of that. Plants such as, let's take soybean as an example, a little more forgiving, partly because indeterminate variety can actually delay part of its fruiting and flowering and and pod set and such more so than corn can. But when that plant is actually putting on the the fruit, if you will, that's when you want to make sure that you have uh, adequate water supply. Dr. Thompson, how do we determine how much water to put on the fields then? You can go up all the way to the point that's called field capacity. And that's a term that what it really represents is the fact that you put on just just enough water to, to put the soil filled to the point where the water's not moving downward. In other words, it's not moving by gravity. If you completely saturate a soil, it's going to continue. To, the water will move through that profile by gravity. So when you do your irrigation scheduling, you want to keep your final water content at what we call field capacity, where the ability of the soil to hold the water is exactly balanced. It balances out what gravity would be doing to try to pull that water down. So one of the things you can do is what's referred to as deficit irrigation. You put some water on, but you don't go all the way back to field capacity. And maybe you have a two-inch profile that you can put on up to two inches of water without that happening. Well, instead of putting two inches on, maybe you're going to put on just an inch or maybe three-quarters of an inch. And then hopefully you can get some rain in the process that will go back and, and make up that difference. So what deficit irrigation is, is you don't water all the way back to field capacity. You leave a little space in there 
so that if it does rain, you'll have room for that water to be held in the profile. How do you manage irrigation if you have different soil types in your operation? That's that's another great question. Look to see where your soil textures change. So if I have an area of the field that has very coarse, sandy soils, I'm going to want to cover that in terms of the rotation speed with the pivot much faster. I'm going to put on less water. I'm trying to avoid that deep percolation loss. If I have a tighter soil, maybe some clays or silty clays on the surface, I want to be careful not to put on too high of an application rate. Otherwise, I'm going to tend to get runoff. So when you have a field that has a lot of variability in soil texture, it is a challenge because you have to decide which part am I going to actually do my irrigation scheduling based on. Now, understand the crop doesn't really care whether you have a coarse soil or a fine textured soil. That water use is basically based on surety aspect of that particular crop and the time of the year. So from the crop's perspective, it's still going to need whatever that we call it evapotranspiration. Whatever that water has been lost through evapotranspiration, we need to be able to replace that. So on a coarser soil, I'll have to irrigate more frequently, but put less water on. On a tighter soil, I just want to make sure that I don't put it on too fast. I have probably less of an issue of over-irrigating, assuming that that water can get into the profile. When you have a field that has a lot of variability, that's really a good recipe to look at variable rate irrigation to see if it's an option for you. Is water temperature important? Water temperature really is a reflection of the water source. So if I'm pumping groundwater, as an example, here in the Midwest, that groundwater will typically be between 55 and 60 degrees Fahrenheit. When I apply it to the canopy, that's typically not a problem, but it does dictate to a small degree how much evaporation loss I might be getting. If I'm using surface water, those surface waters will be closer to the air temperature, depending on what time of the year you're irrigating. And again, in terms of the canopy, it's going to be much cooler typically than the air would be, so that won't be an issue. I think in terms of my own experience with that and working in research, water temperature can make a big difference in terms of how much evaporation loss you have for the particular water that you apply. From the irrigator's perspective, it's typically not going to be a concern. The difference in temperature between surfacing and groundwater might be 20 degrees at most. And any notes when it comes to surface drip irrigation on temperature? On surface irrigation with drip, when that drip line heats up, it actually changes the performance of the emitters. Dr. Thompson, you did mention irrigation scheduling here just a little bit ago. Let's dive into that a little deeper. What say you when it comes to irrigation scheduling? The first thing to do is have some way of keeping track of how much water you put on and how much water the crop has consumed. You might think of it, for those of us that are familiar with using balancing a checkbook, they have what's referred to as a checkbook method. So when you have a deposit, it's either rained or you've irrigated. So then you're going to add to your water account. If you don't get any precipitation and there's no irrigation, then you lose water based on evapotranspiration. Now, a landowner is not really going to have the capacity to measure that, but that's where you can go back and look at some of the extension software programs that are available or the apps or, you know, you can also look to see typically, you know, let's take we're in the first week of July, second week of July. If I have a corn crop, I'm going to be using anywhere from 0.2 to 0.25 inches a day. And if I don't get any cloudy conditions or significant changes in temperature, I can probably use that as a pretty good estimate of how much water is being used up by the crop. And then I simply look at my water balance when I'm getting low in my checking account, if you will, then I'm, and I haven't gotten rainfall. I'll go back and irrigate. So probably the best thing that you can do is maintain 
some aspect of keeping track of what the water profile is in your soil. What is your recommendations or your advice when it comes to using additives or chemicals? Here in the Midwest, for, for the most part, we don't have a lot of problems with that. I think uh, if you're out in the Pacific Northwest, let's say Idaho as an example, where their soils tend to be very highly erodible with, with water, where they found they did surface irrigation, they had some significant sediment loss in the furrows. But by adding what's referred to as polyacrylamide, a long chain polymer, it would improve the soil's ability to maintain its aggregation and they could reduce that. Here in the Midwest, we typically don't run into those issues. So for the most part, if your soil has been properly additive in terms of, of its pH and so on, there are some conditions I think where lime on tighter soils, clay pant soils may actually help a little bit, but it, I don't see a lot of that, but that's something you could certainly visit with the local extension office. And if they had a soil expert, they could check that out. Dr. Thompson, the next question I have is with regard to uniformity then, how do we track effectiveness? I see very few landowners do this, and I'm not necessarily saying you do, but you can certainly run your own uniformity test after a period of time. You know, maybe you've had a system out in the field for several years and starting to see some non-uniformity crop production that you can't attribute to fertility, then it may be water issues. And you can often see that visually in the field. The challenge would be, can you see it? Because you can't actually walk the field. With today's, let's just take drones as an example, and take camera images to find out what your field really look like. Then based on that, you can go ahead and make some changes as necessary. Go back and look to make sure, again, I've said this before, but make sure all your sprinklers are properly operating, that you don't have any plug nozzles, if you don't have any sprinklers that are hung up on any effect of that. If you have a flow meter, then you can also tell, maybe to some degree, if I'm making a rotation, maybe I'm running at 30% speed, and the amount of water I'm putting on is not the same as it was in previous times. That would be an indication that there might be something that needs to be looked at, whether it be a water leak or plug nozzles. Dr. Thompson, in talking about drainage now, what do we need to be aware of? The first thing to look at is, what's your surface profile? If I have low spots in the field that collect water, then I really don't have any way of, of physically getting that water out of the field other than just simply infiltrating unless I'm willing to go ahead and if I do surface drainage to put in a drainage way. Typically, a better way might be is if I have the ability to put in a subsurface drain just over that area to put a perforated pipe and then carry that water outside the field. Again, you have to have enough change in elevation across the field and outside the field to make that work. But if you have spots that are consistently wet, that would be one way of dealing with that. Typically, the cheapest way of dealing with drainage is providing surface drainage. If you go subsurface drainage, then you're going to have someone either put in the traditional drainage systems, use the back hose, and then they would put in, if you want to go really historical, they use clay tile. So when you hear the term tiling, they were really referring to was the fact that they were putting clay tile as a conduit to collect that water subsurface and then carry it out of the field. In today's world, we most often would use corrugated perforated plastic pipe. And then we would put that pipe in, then route that out the field to a point where you have a location, maybe it's a ditch or at least a channel that has open access where you can just discharge that water out the field by gravity. Staying on the topic of tiling, how close should the laterals be? When you put in a drain system, it's really dependent on the soil texture and how deep your soil profile is. 
If you have a fairly deep soil profile where the soils are homogeneous or the same all the way down below the root zone, that makes it quite a bit easier. Your spacing will be dictated then how quickly that water can move. The coarser the soil, the further apart the drains can be placed. The deeper the drains are placed, the further apart the drains can be placed. But the deeper the drains that are placed, the more expensive it is to install them. If you have a soil, say a clay pan soil, like we have in lots of parts of mid-Missouri and up in Illinois, you don't want to put that drain tile below the clay pan because that clay pan has such low, slow infiltration that it's not going to be productive in terms of removing water. In a case like that, that means your drain lines are going to be a lot closer to the soil surface. And anytime your drain lines are closer to the surface, they have to be placed closer together. And obviously, the more drains you put in, the more expensive that installation is going to be. What we're seeing a lot today is a lot of drain plows. And instead of digging with a backhoe and digging a trench and laying the pipe and then filling it in, what a drain plow has is a long shank with a point at the bottom that has tubular a device that allows the pipe to actually be pulled into the soil without fully opening the soil. You just have a shank that goes down. And then with laser, you can make sure whoever the installer is, they can put that drain line at the correct depth across the field. With today's GPS and such, it works very handily and it's much faster and it can be very effective. When you think about drainage, you want to ask yourself, what are my drain problems? If I have wet soils in the spring, And I can't get into the field because the wet soil is going to warm up a lot slower. It's going to be longer before I can get in the field. It takes longer once I get into the field for that plant to emerge. If it's spring wetness, then a drain field across the whole field may be what I'm looking at. If it's just a small area within a field, I may be looking at just a point location where I have a small manifold area, if you will, that I'm going to go ahead and take the drainage out. The key to drainage is spacing. Make sure that the installer puts in the correct drain size. When they connect those, obviously you have T connections at locations where I'm going to call them the individual lateral lines will be connected into a main line that's going to carry the water completely out of all of the field. So when a drainage system is installed, it's best to stay on the contour as much as possible. And on the contour means you're trying to keep just a slight grade, not much, so that there's a change in elevation on the pipe. It has to get the water out of the field, obviously. And you don't want that to be too slow. If the water in that pipe drains too slowly, you can actually get sediment that begins to plug the drain line. So a good installer will know exactly what that is. If you put a drain line and you go straight downhill with the drain line, you're going to run into some issues in terms of of getting good uniformity across the field. The other thing that you might want to consider if you're looking at drainage, particularly subsurface drainage, you may have a very wet spring, but you have a very dry period and you'd like to have that water back. So there's actually designs where they use subsurface drain lines can be water pumped back into those drain lines and it sub-irrigates the system. Again, it depends on what your conditions are. And if you're able to store that water in a reservoir on your own property, you have to have a pump to pump it back up. You have to have uh, control gates buried in the field where you can actually maneuver the water level within that gate so that you can raise the water level back above the drainage line. So now you're, instead of being a subsurface drain, it becomes a subsurface irrigation line. And there's some work done here in Missouri uh, around Novelty, Missouri at the Greenlee Farm here that they've done that practice and found it to be very effective. Dr. Thompson, what about winterizing? What should we do with regard to irrigation systems and winterizing? The first thing to do is make sure you have all the water out of any irrigation lines that are above the frost frost zone. 
if you're pumping groundwater, that's typically not a problem. If you're pumping from surface water, then that may be a consideration. Make sure the water is completely drained out of the irrigation systems. If you have motors and such exposed to the elements, you may want to go ahead and winterize those. If it's an internal combustion engine, there's certain things you may want to be looking at. Obviously, you've been maintaining oil changes throughout this throughout the year as necessary. I would look also at if you have any issues in the field that might have been maybe some minor problems that you hadn't addressed during the growing season. This isn't necessarily winterizing, but it's taking advantage of the off season to make some of those improvements and to make sure you have all aspects are correctly operating. Probably pretty obvious, but make sure that whatever power you have going out to the irrigation system is off, both from a safety perspective as well as as, as anything else. Other than that, there's not a lot more that I'm familiar with in terms of what you would do to, to winterize. Are there some best management practices for removing water from pipes? If you can't do it by gravity, or you just open a valve and let it drain out, then you can also use air compressors to pressurize mm-hmm. the system and blow the water out. All right. Anything else, Dr. Thompson? One thing you can do to, to validate what your system's operating is have a yield monitor on your harvesting equipment. And then you can go back and look at yield maps and to see at the end of the year, is it the water? Maybe it's fertilizer. If I'm doing chemigation and fertigation, am I getting uniform application on that way? But a yield monitor is a good way to evaluate. If you do your own harvesting, you already have some idea of where the better locations are and maybe where the poor yields are, and if they're consistently in the same locations. But a yield monitor makes it where you can actually look at that from year to year and make some direct comparisons. This has been such a great and informative show here today. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Alan Thompson, plant science and technology professor emeritus in the College of Agriculture, Food, and Natural Resources at the University of Missouri. I'm Lori Boyer. This episode of the Successful Farming Podcast has been brought to you by the United Soybean Board.